Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests and more great conversations. Coming up on today's show, Moneyball. Nathan Murphy from Off The Ball joins us to discuss if the incredible levels of investment in sports nowadays actually makes us consumers rather than fans. And later on in the show, I'll be talking to the author of a new book called Beyond the Wall. It chronicles the short life of East Germany. It's a book that's getting rave reviews all around the world and it reveals a very colourful history that may surprise you. And finally, as Tucker Carlson exits Fox News stage right, we'll examine the man, his influence, his departure, and we'll be asking what might happen next in a media career that's been defined by politics and division. Now, we love hearing from you, so you can email us at takingstock@newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to start with that new book. It's called Beyond the Wall. East Germany, or the German Democratic Republic, as it was known, had a very short life, just 40 years. And it came to kind of embody what the Cold War in Europe was about to many of us, a secret police, Soviet-style socialism and questionable sporting achievement. But in her new book, my next guest acknowledges all of this, but she goes a lot further and she tells us about what it was really like for the people who actually called it home. Historian and author Katya Hoyer joins me now to discuss. Katya, you're very welcome to News Talk. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Katya, uh, we'll start off with your own life, uh, where you grew up and what your circumstances were, because that often frames why people kind of look at doing a book such as this. Um, yes, yeah, so I was born in the in the GDR myself in East Germany in, in 1985. And uh, sort of whilst I was still a small child when the war came down and when Germany reunified, um, it was still an experience that, you know, sort of lingered in the way that all the people around me carried on talking about it. You know, the, the the flat I was living in didn't change overnight. It was still the same place that you lived in. Your teachers were still the same. Um, so in many ways, you know, you sort of grow up in the remnants of a state that doesn't exist anymore. And that's always left me wondering what it was like and what it would have been like to to live in it. But secondly, also as a historian, it was important for me to to sort of ensure or try to ensure that the uh, East German story becomes part of the German story. It seems very much a footnote or an unfortunate kind of side strand of the of the story at the moment. Yes. And one of us, a lot, uh, one one story that a lot of us just don't understand or, or just have not ever seen from any different perspective other than what we learn from a general narrative in the news. Can I ask you, Katia, um, What was it about now that made you decide to write this book? I know that there's been, um, you know, for the last number of years, we've all been looking at what's been happening on the eastern margins of of Europe and everything that has come from that in the last year. But was there a particular reason why you chose this time to do it? Well, it's still an incredibly uh, sort of emotional and and difficult topic to talk about for for many Germans themselves. Um, And I was rather hoping that after about 30 odd years now, you know, we have a new generation, people like me who may have been born either in the last stages of the GDR or shortly after, 
um, perhaps have less of an emotional connection directly to this. So in a way, the East German story has now become history as opposed to current affairs. Mm. Um, and that maybe allows a slightly more nuanced and, and uh, sort of complicated story to be told than, than the one that we are familiar with. Yes, and time can um, allow that space for people to discuss it in a more rational and, and reasoned way. But let's go back a little bit to... Um, the formation. Uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about how it was formed, and indeed, who were the founding father fathers? What were their what was their rationale? So I'll start the book quite a bit earlier than the actual formation of the of the state in 1949, because I think it's really important to understand where these uh, so-called founding fathers of the GDR came from. Um, we're basically talking about two men in particular, Walter Ulbricht, who became the general secretary of the ruling party and ran the state for about 20 years, um, and the first and only president of the of the GDR, Wilhelm Pieck, um, who both spent the Second World War in Soviet uh, Russia, in Moscow, um, because they'd previously fled from, from Hitler um, in Nazi Germany. And like many others who, who'd done the same thing um, and expected the Soviet Union to be the, the workers' paradise that they were promised, uh, they found that that certainly wasn't the case um, with Stalinist repression in, in the sort of mid-late 1930s, particularly targeting Germans, regardless of the fact whether they were communists or not. Um, it was a really dangerous place for people to be and only very few people survived. Um, so, for instance, out of nine people of the leadership of the German Communist Party who fled to the Soviet Union, only those two survived. Um, and that meant that, first of all, those who survived were shaped by that experience of violence, of suspicion, of, of constantly having to sort of prove that that you were a true communist. Mm. And on the flip side, it also meant that those who were left over were the most loyal and the most sort of, you know, hardcore really members of the of the German uh, communist movement. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and look, I want to get on to what life was like for people living in that part of Germany at that time, because I think a lot of people will be surprised um, and it will challenge a lot of the views that we have today. But f- for now, I think it's important to understand what they wanted. What was their hope for GDR? What did they want to achieve? Um, and how did that affect the people who lived there? I think the um, sort of main thing that may be surprising is that there was a genuine amount of um, kind of enthusiasm and and idealism as well to start with about the idea of genuinely building a new Germany. I mean, it's easy to forget now, but the horrors of the Second World War uh, were looming very large. You know, that's not just the the actual experience of war that that East Germans and all Germans had undergone, mm. um, but also the fact that you know militarism, genocide, the Holocaust had all come out of Germany, um, and so here was a chance to build something completely new, something completely different. And many Germans um, were keen to try and do that. I mean, you know, many people actually moved to the East to start with in in forty nine and and fifty and fifty one. Um, like Bertolt Brecht, for instance, the, the playwright. So, you know, there's, there's, there was a genuine kind of idea around that, you know, people would roll their sleeves up and build this new Germany out of the ashes of the old. Mm. And then just the population, was it a big, how, you know, what, what was the population like and how did the people generally live there? How did it, How did their lives go from day to day? Were they kind of just getting on with life in parallel with what we were seeing Um from the from the sort of one remove and what we saw on the news and what we kind of 
formed, I suppose, in our own minds about what East Germany would be. What was their lives actually really like? Well, it, it changed a lot over time. And this is one of the points I'm trying to make in the book as well. That people tend to see, the you know, it's 41 years the state existed and people see that as one block, uh, as one sort of static block, whilst we talk about, say, you know, Britain or, or Ireland or Western societies in the 60s and the 70s. And we make very clear distinctions there, but somehow we don't do that for for East Germany. And, and so life changed quite a lot. Initially in the 1950s, it still because many houses had been destroyed by the war uh, people had experienced terrible things men were only just coming back from captivity in the in the early 1950s uh, from from prison of war camps um so initially it was it was very tough but then throughout the 1960s and 70s you actually get the highest living standards in the communist world in east germany and people you know, feel that things have stabilized on a day-to-day basis. They don't have to worry about having a roof over their heads, having a job uh, because there was full-time employment, uh, having education. Um, but at the same time, of course, the you know the the state didn't turn into a into a kind of more democratic state or into a less oppressive state. Mm. That continued to go on at the same time. So one of the many things I'm trying to do in the book is highlight that it was very possible to have this oppression side that, you know, we focus on and tend to know about. But at the same time, people also led comparatively normal lives and actually quite stable and, and very often quite happy lives. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, in a, an event that happened in 1973, the 10th World Festival on Youth of Youth and Students um, in Berlin. And you seem to be quite taken by that personally. Why do you think that this was um, so important to you in, in sort of trying to define that narrative of what might have been? Because the narrative of the GDR is normally defined by a, a big uprising in 1953, uh, which nearly brought the GDR down had it not been brutally squashed by, by Soviet tanks. And by 1989, when it is brought down by the masses, and it's almost as if, you know, there was a direct connection between those two dates, the f- despite the fact that they were over 30 years apart. And a lot of stuff happened in between. For example, the the youth festival in 1973. And I think that was a moment when I spoke to people about it where, you know, you had 8 million people coming to East Berlin. And that included many, many Westerners, including West Germans. Um, and those discussions that were going on there, you know, around kind of between people from the East and from the West around what it meant to be in a free society, what it meant to have a say in, in your workplace or in your in your local area or in government, you know, were really quite um, made people quite hopeful. The fact that those discussions were allowed to be had between East and West about capitalism and communism, about democracy and and, and dictatorship and so on and so forth. And there was a genuine moment there, I think, where people felt, you know, now was the time to open up, to to reform, to make the system uh, more humane and, and more livable than it, than it was at the time, because the living standards had kind of been stabilised and now was the time to look into how society and, and the government could live together better. And the fact that that wasn't heeded, I find, makes, you know, 1973 an interesting moment in time because of the feeling of hope that something might change and the way that that unfolded very differently afterwards. Absolutely. And then evidence of that trajectory you talked about, things didn't start and stop the same. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. My name is Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Katia Hoyer about her new book, Beyond the Wall. Katia, um, as a historian, how important was it to you um, to get the 
I suppose, trust of the people, many of whom shared their stories with you for this book. I think it's important for our listeners to understand this isn't just a narration story that's full of uh, stories from other people, photographs. So for as a historian and particularly for what was happening, I suppose, in GDR at that time around uh, Stasi, you know, um, analysing people, did you find it um, easy to get people to kind of share information on their files with you? Uh, no, I didn't, um, because over the over the last few years uh, and maybe even decades, uh, many, many East Germans felt that their story was either not told at all um, and treated as a sort of embarrassment. And you just don't didn't really talk about anything that happened before 1990 um, or it was even held against them. Um, I actually start the book with with an example in Angela Merkel, who's who's arguably the most famous East German and. And she only said in her very last speech in office after 16 years of having been the German chancellor uh, that she felt still that her, her background in, in East Germany was treated as, as some sort of you know dark secret, some dark history that, that you just don't talk about. And mm. she was never able to, to make that part of her persona. So when I approached people, it was, it was difficult because people know that I live in, in Britain. Um, that I have lived here for a long time um, and I had to almost make it clear to them that I was born in the GDR, understand where they come from, my own you know, family background and, and everybody you know, I grew up with grew up in East Germany and that I was not trying to contort their story or judge it in any way, um, but that I just wanted to know what, what had happened to them and they would never have come forward themselves with these stories, they, they were all suggested to me by other people. Um, so that in itself made it made it difficult. But they all said at the end they were very glad to talk about it. Many of them hadn't talked about their experiences for years um, and felt that they were finally sort of listened to and also that somebody was taking it seriously and, and you know, making it part of, of a history that they've themselves experienced. That it, but that's also a history of the of the state overall. Absolutely. Maybe um, a useful exercise from their perspectives in, in self-understanding as well as helping to you know, create a wider awareness of, of what life was like. You mentioned Angela Merkel there and you do indeed reference her closing speech. It, it has always seemed to be just a footnote of her career, if, if ever mentioned. Um, but I've actually, on a personal level, I, I know three women who have grown up uh, in the GDR and they all have a similar kind of trait. They're all very strong. Their parents were all really invested in education. Um, and w- was there a, a, a particular um, thing about women and being employed at the time or how were women treated? Were they treated any differently? Did they did they find themselves progressing? Um, it's just that I'm struck by how strong the three women who I know are from there. They all have the same traits. Yeah, and uh, that's definitely a feature of of life in um, the GDR because um, by the end of it, by the 1980s, they had the highest rate of female employment, not just at the time in the world, but ever achieved in the world. Over 90% of of East German women were working full time. Mm. Um, And that includes the time when, you know, when you had small children, the the birth rate was still stable at the same time because of childcare um, being sort of widely available and very easy and very affordable. Um, and as a result of that, you know, you do that over a couple of generations and you end up with women moving outside the domestic sphere with a lot more confidence and a lot more kind of, you know, it's a natural thing for them to do. This isn't kind of people weren't self-conscious of the fact that they'd entered 
you know, a sort of male work sphere or, or intimidating environment or anything like that. They were they were treated on eye level mm. um, by the end of that time by their male colleagues. They went out for a beer after work with them. You know, they'd have banter with them. It was a normal kind of thing for women to be outside the house and, and kind of move freely through all spheres of, of public life. And as a result of that, you still see that very much in the way that, you know, East German women or women with that sort of background conduct themselves today. They just find it more normal you know, to be challenged on their views, to to push back, to argue, um, to push for higher salaries is quite in- interesting. For example, that East German women today still earn more than their uh, than their men, than East German men. Mm. And so, when you just go into the territory that was the GDR previously, whilst that isn't the case in West Germany, where there's the standard sort of pay gap that you see between men and women, um, so it's definitely a legacy there. Absolutely. Very interesting. And and I, I'm always struck when I'm talking to them because two of those women I mentioned are working in the area of STEM and have been engineers uh, at a very, I suppose, what we would consider um, early time for, for women to be getting into those type of industries. But I've often thought maybe they got the model right for entering women into the workforce on a par. The book is called Beyond the Wall. I can't recommend it highly enough. And that was its author, Katia Harrier, historian. Katia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. After the break, as the Financial Times now has a new section that's dedicated to the issue of finance in sport, we look at the billion dollar industry that's a complex matrix of high finance and consumer engagement. That's all after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, every week we see millions, if not billions of dollars, pounds and euros change hands in international transfers. TV, sports sponsorships, merchandise and ticket sales. Revenues in sport are just astronomical at the moment. So how has the business of sport evolved from a pastime to a huge industry? To discuss, I'm joined now by Nathan Murphy from Off The Ball. Nathan, you're very welcome. Good to see you, Mandy. Now, what what started us down this road was that recently the Financial Times announced a new section called Scoreboard. It's a sign of the times really when one of the leading financial newspapers in the world now dedicates an entire section to the business of sport. It is uh, depressing for the sports reporters that <laughs> so much of our time is now spent talking about the business of sport. But this won't be a depressing segment uh, at all. Yeah. It, it has gone completely insane and the numbers are astronomical uh, in every sense from player wages up on £300,000 a week in the Premier League now to the amount that's been played for clubs, £2.5 billion for Chelsea. If Liverpool or Manchester United end up being sold in full, probably looking at at least £5, £6 billion. It is a million miles away from the community grassroots football of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, actually, uh, just to name drop a little bit, I bumped into Johnny Giles one day when he was leaving here after doing your mm. programme and it was just around the time of the transfer window and the premiership uh, that huge spend by Chelsea like I think it was the same as six of the top clubs in Europe in one club and I was asking him like Liam Brady's documentary was on at the same time and I was asking him I was like look was there any sort of sense within the player group at that time to kind of get get together and make things better for you from a wage perspective you know and he said like you know we were just delighted to play like we wanted to play for the fans we wanted to get there, your response, but like, no. So I suppose what interests me in this is when you're looking at sport now as a massive industry and big business, are are we, you and I as people who follow sport, are we now 
not just seen as fans anymore, but we're like consumers and commodities. Oh, absolutely. The fan experience has changed completely that it's no longer about just being from the local area and going to see your club on a Saturday. Uh, All of this investment that's been made into the Premier League and 15 of the 20 clubs of foreign ownership, it is built upon this being a global brand. And there was a time where Irish supporters who looked and followed Liverpool, people might question and say, well, what's the connection? And we'd say, well, there's a strong Celtic connection between Ireland and Liverpool. Now they're looking to New York and they're looking to Thailand and they're looking around the world and they realise they can make as much money from supporters there as they can make from players and from supporters who turn up at the ground. The vast majority of football fans will never get to Old Trafford or Anfield, but that doesn't mean that the owners don't want to find a way of getting revenue in from them. And the main way that they're going to do that, it seems, is through television or new media revenue because already we're moving very quickly past TV deals. Mm. You look around even the Premier League with their deal with Amazon. You look to the United States where Google have put in a massive investment. Apple are putting in a massive investment. And it's the potential for what comes next with those brands, I think, that's seen this massive sudden increase and the desire of a lot of club owners to maybe think now is the time to get out. Yeah, and TV, I suppose, not just now, but historically has been a huge part of transforming the Mm. game of football. You might just remind us about how significant the establishment of the Premiership and that aligning with Sky Sports, how that changed the game. Well, the Premier League is uh, essentially as a result of TV. Alan Sugar, his job was selling satellite dishes and he was the owner of Tottenham and he was very much involved in the setup of the Premier League for that exact reason. He wanted to sell satellite dishes. So if you think back to the late 80s, uh, which was a pretty grim time in English football, uh, you might see one game a week, one game every two or three weeks. Sky Sports come on board in 1992. They go to a elite Premier League where money is driven in through the TV deal. Uh, you're suddenly seeing four or five games a week on TV. And then clubs are able to invest in better players. So the best players from around Europe started to come in the mid-90s. And even then it was a little bit of a trickle mm. to a scenario now where the Premier League is comfortably the best league in the world. It used to almost be held against Premier League that they would say we're the be- like, there's no question yeah. the best players in the world almost all of them, with the exception of Real Madrid and Barcelona, play in the Premier League. And it's not just Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City. You go down towards the bottom half of the table. Mm. There's internationals from all over the world playing for the likes of Southampton, Brighton, Brentford, very unfashionable clubs that you wouldn't have thought of. They're paying as much, if not more now, than some of the giants of European football history. So the money, you even, even over the last 10, 12 years, to give an example in terms of how the revenue has gone forward, in 2011 the team that finished bottom of the Premier League was guaranteed £39 Last season, the team that finished bottom was guaranteed £113 So that means for finishing 20th, you're guaranteed £113 Manchester City, who won the league, got £140 So actually, one of the things the Premier League have done quite well, Mm. there's not a massive disparity in terms of how that revenue is distributed in comparison to somewhere like Spain, where Barcelona and Real Madrid absolutely dominate it. But then Manchester City got 140 million, another 110 million or so for their participation in the Champions League. So that's a 250 million base revenue before anyone even comes into the stadium, anyone buys a jersey, any sponsorship deals, which in Manchester City's case, we could be here for another year trying to get into yeah. uh, their sponsorship deals, which is uh, going to be going before several courts over the next couple of years. But if you're a owner and a lot of American owners are coming in and looking at that sort of guaranteed revenue and probably thinking, 
they can multiply that massively if they can somehow bring a bit more of an American model into the English game. Mm. That's why you're seeing this sort of investment, particularly from American companies and American billionaires. Yeah, it's a very complex financial matrix now, uh, getting involved in any kind of uh, buyout of uh, sports organisations or clubs. Uh, We spoke a little bit about football there. Let's turn to the American situation now. I think the biggest team buyout has happened recently, six billion euro paid for. and and that was bought by a hedge fund manager, or and 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 the last comparable figure was for the the Broncos last year, which was four bill four billion four billion. Do these people get their money back? Do the investors uh, get a return? Is it that lucrative? Have we gone? It is. So uh, the Commanders was sold by Dan Snyder. He bought it in 1999 for £800 and uh, managed to flip it last year. And it was the most toxic brand in American sport because it was once the Washington Redskins. I've read that a lot of analysts still look at the sports market as quite immature in that you have this weird mix of normal market forces such as general revenue and the strong customer base. But you also have ego and a sports washing element. So you have the likes of... Qatar and Saudi Arabia who are coming in and investing massively to try and convince the world that they are progressive nations. But you also still, in American sport, in Premier League, just have a very rich individual who wants this as his prized asset. And all of these things go into the mix together, which means you end up with these massively inflated prices. Now, you look at the commanders and think, oh, six billion. But the revenue that is coming into American football is off the charts because of the likes of Amazon and Google and Apple. So Google have invested $2 billion a year into the NFL just for games on a Sunday evening. That follows last year Amazon committing $1 billion a year for one game every Thursday night. Now, the NFL season only runs from September to January. So it's no longer a... You know, we probably still think of it was RTE against TV3 and then it was BBC against ITV. Then Sky came in and suddenly Sky had a competitor in BT. Now it's about Sky and BT when the next Premier League rights come around will be competing with Amazon, with Google, with Disney Plus, with all of the subscription channels. The Premier League are hoping to get Netflix interested in football because live sport is one of the few things in entertainment that people still sit mm. and watch live. Mm. So it's not like sitting down for succession and I'll watch it at 9 o'clock on Tuesday and you'll watch it on Thursday night. Tonight, Manchester United, if they play at 8 o'clock, everybody's sitting down at 8 o'clock. There's no point watching it tomorrow. It's Mm, done. mm. So it is, and obviously Google, Amazon, Disney are looking at this in a different way. It's part of a much greater business. But again, it's getting people to subscribe, say subscribe, buy their other products and all of that. So those numbers would suggest that, yes, they can get a return on their investment. And then you look at what the broadcasting arrangements are for people like the NFL, like... 100 billion plus broadcasting agreements over 10 years, mm. you know, and that's before you start into the additional advertising revenues and stuff. Um, when we were talking earlier about uh, putting back in, uh, in relation to football, is any of this money divested back towards the sports, you know? Well, towards grassroots, I, the Premier League would sit here, I'm sure, and talk for an hour as to how it all filters its way down through the lower leagues. Like that's In terms of transfer fees, that's happening less and less because they spend so much of their money in leagues around the world. We see that here in Ireland where so many Irish internationals would have come through the Premier League where that's not simply the case. They're competing with players from Africa, from Asia, from South America, you name it. Uh, 
the money is going into players' pockets quite often, which personally I don't have a huge issue with. You mentioned John Giles, he would have talked about the maximum wage, like the players are the talent. Mm. Uh, they're generally coming from quite deprived backgrounds. I don't have a massive issue if the clubs are bringing in this sort of revenue, that some of that is going back to the players. Uh, it's whether the fans then are getting screwed out of this. Like, mm. you know, the cost of going to a game is going up and up. You'd wonder how sustainable that is. It's no longer the working man's game football, particularly Premier League football. It's almost impossible to get a ticket for mm. a Liverpool or Manchester United. You're paying. Uh, the prices are going up and up. So, uh, you know, is it going back into the sport? I don't think so. I think it's going around in a sort of vicious circle mm. of uh, the money just evaporates and the rich get richer. Kind of brings us back to where we started. You know, have we lost the fandom? Are we into consumer-driven territory? You mentioned sports watching earlier, and the live golf was mm. obviously a huge example of that uh, a lot of the players just deciding from the get go like Rory n- not to go near it but like the money talks at the end of the day they're, they're up and running it, 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 exactly they are now I think there's still question marks as to whether live long term can be a success and you know people will say it's been a force of good for golf because it's forced the PGA to respond and we get the best players playing each other more often like it's not a sustainable business model they still don't have a sponsor not a single sponsor. But they don't have the, any TV but, deals. But, but they spent the over money. $2 billion from the Saudi investment fund. Now, do they keep investing that uh, at that sort of rate? It's highly unlikely. But you would have to say, a year ago, I don't think anyone could have predicted the amount of players that Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, Cameron Smith, all these guys would have gone to play at Live Golf. Nobody could have predicted the success it was going to be. Greg Norman's talking this week about maybe trying to set up a women's tour. It'll be like pushing an open door there because the prize funds are so much smaller than they are at the men's game. Uh, we've seen with Newcastle, if they do qualify for the Champions League this year, again, the Saudi investment fund, you would expect will double down massively. If they're in the Champions League, they'll have an excuse to spend as much as they want. So it's very difficult for football fans at the moment when they look at the ownership in Manchester United the alternatives as to who takes over from the Glazers and the Glazers are absolutely hated for the way they've gutted the club and the amount of money they take from the club. Like, if it's going to be a Qatari owner of Manchester United, how should res- fans respond to that? Mm. I'm not quite sure because they have loved their club. What happens at boardroom level is so but, far away from what they like to watch on the pitch. But that resistance was there when the Glazers bought mm. it. They just got used to it. It just trundled on and that's probably what's going to happen again. I would imagine so. I would imagine there'll be protests. There would be a massive backlash but could I foresee a scenario where Old Trafford is empty midway through next season if there was Qatari ownership of the club? I would be absolutely shocked. The vast majority of people choose to ignore this. This is why sports watching uh, works. You just have to look at the scenes around St. James's Park. You will find very few Newcastle fans unhappy because very similar situation. Remember, Mike Ashley absolutely hated. So they welcomed with open arms the Saudi investment and have closed their eyes to everything that goes on. Uh, finally, just before I let you go, off the ball, brilliant, brilliant sports product. Do you find yourself as a sports fan, you want to be talking about what's happened on the pitch, find yourself talking about more that's happening in boardrooms and finance? Is that little... It, it, it's definitely become more commonplace. Like golf is actually the prime example in that I, I present Golf Weekly and we would you know, often have rows around golf and getting it on the main off the ball show and it'll happen four times a year and there'll be no great... When Live Golf came around, it was on the show every single week because suddenly it was a controversy and people were invested in it. It is difficult when you're commentating on a match and you're watching Newcastle and how often should you mention the fact that, well, this money has come from Saudi Arabia and there's massive question marks about Saudi Arabia's human rights record. There's only so often it feels that you can actually talk about that before the listeners just want to hear about the football. And that's, again... 
that's why it works. They trust that fatigue will kick in. I, live golf now, the talk isn't about where the money's coming from. It's about the damage it's doing to golf rather than... Yeah, people move on very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Nathan, like you, I've got my once in every four months uh, chance to speak about sports. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming in and talking to me. That's Nathan Murphy from Off The Ball. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Coming up, as Fox News fires its biggest star, Tucker Carlson, we'll examine the man, his influence and what Fox will be like without him. That's after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, finally today, last week after Fox News agreed to pay a staggering 787 million settlement to Dominion voting systems, another shock was in store for us all with the announcement of the split between themselves and their golden calf, Tucker Carlson. But what will become of Fox without him? And indeed, what will become of him without Fox? We're joined now by Adam Gabbett, who's journalist with the US Guardian, and he's based in New York. Adam, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Now, just in case anyone's living under a rock, you might just explain to us exactly who Tucker Carlson is and just how big um, an announcement this was in the media landscape in the US. Yeah, well, Tucker Carlson for many years now has been Fox News's biggest, most profitable personality. Uh, He brings in the biggest audience. He's got the most popular show and he's almost like a demigod to his viewers. Uh, And people thought he was untouchable. Uh, He's got a history of saying absolutely outrageous and horrible and offensive and racist things. And Fox News has kept him on until this week and they got rid of him. Mm. Um, So it was a real shock. Now, he's not exactly someone you could say has dragged himself up by his bootstraps. So how did this establishment figure become such a champion of the working class? Well, it's so strange, isn't it? I mean, there are parallels with uh, Donald Trump, Mm. who obviously, you know, born into wealth. I I think... That's the thing. I mean, people like this do have this talent. And unfortunately, just in this case, it's been used for evil. Um, It's clearly been able to discern what upsets people and what people are afraid of um, and then just pummel that message. So and and what he settled on that uh, is going to attract people is that white people are under attack, under threat from, uh, well, other races and unnamed liberals. And uh, he's just tapped into that. And I think a lot of these TV hosts, they watch their, they get a lot of information on what people like, what the viewers like. Once he discovered that this was the kind of thing people wanted, he just doubled down and let's give them more racism. Let's give them more attacks Mm. on trans people. And uh, once it was working for him, um, you know, it was like an open goal and he just kept, scoring every night. Yeah, he certainly did because the viewership figures are extraordinary. Three million viewers for his nightly show. So, um, as you say, he tapped into something, it worked for him and he just kept going. It's not far away from the Murdoch's original kind of sentiment of if it bleeds, it leads. Um, And this negative echo chamber he created for himself and the followers ultimately um, rewarded Donald Trump. How important was that relationship in his own career progression? And indeed, how important was it for the elevation of Donald Trump? Yeah, well, I think it was mutually beneficial, right? So 
Donald Trump essentially was saying a lot of the same stuff as Tucker Carlson, uh, maybe reined in slightly compared to Tucker Carlson, if you can imagine it. So the more Donald Trump was saying his things, and it was apparent that people were really drawn to this message of white people being under attack, under attack of America being invaded by immigrants. Um, the more people were drawn to that message, the more it validated what Tucker Carlson was doing mm. and vice versa. So uh, they were both aware this audience was established. And I think, you know, not necessarily on purpose, but they both um, helped each other appeal to those or to the audience by making it more clearly defined. So if Tucker Carlson's on there telling Trump supporters, essentially Trump is right about this, and uh, uh, Trump is feeding the same kind of message, then it builds up this, uh, you know, that term echo chamber. Mm. Uh, it, it just builds that, reinforces people's um, worldview and, yeah, elevated them both. Mm. You mentioned very briefly there the great replacement theory uh, that he has mm. often espoused. Can you just give us, um, if, if you know, a flavour of, of what he was accusing the state, the establishment of and what his ultimate theory is? on that replacement theory that he has frequently espoused? Oh, yeah, it's one of his favourite things. Um, So the great replacement theory, the idea is, I mean, it's a racist theory, should just get that out there at the start, and it's not true. But the idea is that the establishment, and again, just those are these kind of shadowy figures, but the establishment wants to encourage immigrants who are not white to move to the US and uh, encourage them under the idea that these immigrants will be more likely to vote for the Democratic Party. And uh, as a larger part of that, it is part of an effort to uh, essentially not wipe out white people, but push them into a minority. Mm. Um, And this has been something that's been knocking around various right-wing circles for decades. But Tucker Carlson has done more than anyone to push it to the front. The New York Times, which doesn't say these things lightly, did an investigation last year it found that Tucker Carlson has uh, endorsed or pushed this theory 400 times over the past few years. I mean, it, it really, it's hard to overstate how obsessed Tucker Carlson is with this idea. Uh, absolutely. And I think in, even in his final broadcast, this was something that he mentioned again, maybe not knowing that it was his fin- final broadcast. But he's also been very successful in weaponizing his large viewership not just in relation to Donald Trump, but in also pushing policymakers towards uh, his own um, agenda. So I'm thinking of people like Ron DeSantis and he's managed to get governors to mobilise the National Guard. So the politicians um, have responded to his direct call for actions, haven't they? Yeah, they really have. And this is the thing because, you know, Tucker Carlson every night got 3 million viewers. I mean, you know, there's 330 million people in America. So it's a huge, it's a big audience, but you can kind of think, how is he so influential? But he was driving the agenda, Mm. as you say. So, um, and of course, like these clips are repeated online, shared on Facebook. So if you were any kind of really serious, ambitious uh, Republican politician, you had to get his backing, it's incredible someone had that kind of power. And again, it's this bond he'd built with his audience. Um, his audience were obsessed with Tucker mm. Carlson. And uh, these are people who, it, he had an older audience, you know, I mean, there were people who were very engaged, the kind of people who vote 
in the Republican primaries, possibly have a lot of time on their hands, and really believed what he was saying. So they're so passionate. They will push these politicians who are then under pressure to uh, yeah, essentially warm to what Tucker Carlson's saying. Mm, indeed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Adam Gabbett, who's a journalist with The Guardian in the US. And we're talking about Tucker Carlson, his influence and for now, demise. Um, so that brings us neatly along to his departure. Um, do you think he expected it? Do you think it's about the court case? Do you think there are other things in the background that drove this? Well, I definitely don't think he expected it. Um, he was told just a few minutes before uh, it was announced to it was announced publicly on Monday and on his Friday show, which turned out to be his last, mm. he'd announced confidently that uh, <laughs> we'll see you on Monday. So I don't think it was expected. Um, in terms of what's driven it, I mean, there's a lot of different theories, um, but none of them really make sense. If it was an ethical thing, then why did all of the sudden the Murdochs um, decide they, you know, had these morally, this moral argument against him? You know, why not in last February when he was cheering on Russia as it invaded Ukraine? Why not when he was saying immigrants to America make the country poorer? Or, you know, the hundreds of times he's endorsed white replacement theory. So this ethical idea doesn't really hold up. If it was a business decision, that doesn't make sense because he's their golden calf, as you said at the top there. Um, There was the lawsuit, the Dominion lawsuit, and as part of that, a lot of things came out. Some we've seen, some we haven't. Um, he was has been sending messages calling Fox executives the C word. You know, no one likes that sort of thing. But I think the most compelling idea about why they got rid of Tucker Carlson is just that he got too big for his boots mm. and the Murdochs didn't like it. So he's criticizing the bosses. I think there was a sense that he felt he was above Fox News's law, that he could do what he liked um, and that he was beyond reproach. Um, and, uh, you know, the Murdochs don't like that. And they, before, they've got a history before of culling people who have started to think they're bigger than the show. It's like, you know, a kind of football analogy, no player is bigger than the team. Mm. And I think there is an element of that to it. Okay, so that they couldn't control him and it's not worth taking the risk um, mm. as to where he might go on something. Yeah, maybe he's becoming bigger than the brand, the brand itself. I just wanted to ask your thoughts on some of the comments that were revealed in the papers on uh, the defamation case in relation to Dominion and, and that lawsuit that, that finished a couple of weeks ago with the settlement. Because... It actually revealed a lot about his thoughts, his real thoughts and what he felt about Donald Trump um, and how that differed from what he was willing to say on air. Do you think that there's he's a performer rather than uh, somebody who's actually invested in these types of beliefs? Yeah, I I think there is definitely an element to that. I mean, uh, those messages revealed that I think he said, I hate Trump passionately. He hated Trump passionately when he'd been on air for, I mean, like six, seven years, uh, championing Donald Trump almost every night. Um, There were other things that completely contradicted the, the sort of messages he was saying publicly. So, yeah, I mean, this goes back to kind of what we were saying, like, he discovered what his audience wanted to hear. Mm. He had a really good sense of what his audience wanted to hear. 
and he knew that it would make him more popular if he carried on feeding that. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of just straight up cynicism to this. Mm. And um, it was really revealing. I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that behind the scenes, he's a super nice guy. Uh, he's obviously someone who, he, you know, I think he does have beliefs and some things in particular seem to have really caught his interest. Like maybe he does genuinely believe that um, the government is trying to um, force out white people out of America. Mm. So he's not, he's not a perfect, uh, you know, he's not someone you would like to get to know, but definitely there's a performative aspect to it. So where to next for him? Uh, you know, Fox, obviously the biggest platform in America as well. Um, it, it, there are obviously other right winged outlets that would welcome him with open arms. I know he's been he's issued a little video this week. Um, but is there any do you have any thoughts about what he might do personally next? Is any any danger he might enter politics or anything like that? <laughs> I know that's been suggested and he did a speech last year that people claimed was a, a sort of I might run for president speech, but I don't see why he would do that. I mm. mean, you know, politics is such hard work. And at the moment he's beyond he's been beyond reproach. You know, he's got this audience who loves him. The second you enter politics you can get criticized, which I don't think he'd like. Um there are other right wing news networks, but I don't think they could pay him anywhere near as much as Fox News has been paying him, which is apparently twenty million a year. The other ones are quite small. They also don't have anything like the audience um, that Fox News has. So for someone who loves the spotlight, uh, it would be difficult for him to go to somewhere else and have like a tenth of the number of people tuning in. Mm. Um, And it's difficult to say. I mean, it might be a difficult path. Like Fox News has got rid of its like uh, cash cows before. There was Bill O'Reilly. Glenn Beck was a big deal for a while. Uh, More recently, Megyn Kelly. And none of them has done as well as they did at Fox News. Mm. Um, We are in, you know, now there is also more opportunity for him to potentially, whatever, go on YouTube, although I'm not sure if what he said would pass YouTube's kind of... um, Censors, yeah. Yeah, censors. But there's other right-wing channels. So he could pop up somewhere else, but I mean, it's not easy for him. I think Fox News will be just fine. Mm. Tucker Carlson might have to work a little bit harder uh, to continue his career in the same way. Yeah, you frightened me a little bit there when you said uh, he's got a very good TV personality and he's got a very <laughs> successful show. That just reminds me of Donald Trump coming from The Apprentice. So oh dear, you yeah. can never rule anything out. Look, just finally, before I let you go, Adam, if you wouldn't mind, um, President Biden visited Ireland here last week. We're still beside ourselves with excitement about how much he loved <laughs> us and how much we loved him. But he's finally declared uh, his candidacy for the presidency. How has that gone down in in the US and do you think ultimately we're going to look at Biden versus Trump yet again? I think I think it will be that, yeah. At this stage it's hard to see anything else. Um, how it's gone down, I mean, um, Republicans, the right-wing media, uh, very unhappy, but of course they're, they're going to be. There's a lot of uh, criticism of him over his age, which obviously he can't help. Um, among Democrats, just a sense of... Um, they're just resigned to it, I yeah. think. I mean, there's no other really clear candidate who would make a lot of sense. If someone, if a president is elected to one term, uh, generally uh, looking at history, they win a second. Obviously, <laughs> Trump did not. Um, there's no one else waiting in the wings at the moment. It, it just, you know, I don't think anyone's particularly excited about it, but it, it's just 
kind of resignation. He's he's going to be our guy. And Trump is well ahead of anyone else in the Republican Party. So, yeah, we might have Trump-Biden part two, which I don't think anyone is looking forward to. No, uh, sorry, just one final question if I can. Where will Fox News sit in all this now? Do you think they'll support Trump the next time he's uh, out? I think they will. I mean, there was some. there's been some signs that they were... Uh, sort of a bit more hesitant on Trump. They like a guy called Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. But it turns out not that many of the voters yeah. like Ron DeSantis. He's not doing too well um, in the polls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Fox News, and I mean, Murdoch has always done this, right? They, they, they obviously lead the audience, but once they've led the audience somewhere, they, they're obliged to follow them. Um, mm. They've created this situation where... Trump is king and um, the audience want more Trump and I think they've they've made their bed and they've got a lie in it. Yeah, well, they said many times, they are my people, I must follow them. But for now, we're going to have to leave it all there. That was Adam Gabbett, who is a journalist with The Guardian in the US. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings but we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app that's powered by Go Loud. If you want to get in contact with us you can email takingstock at newstalk.com and join in the conversation. My thanks to today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock John Fardy with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.